This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Suzanne Paola Antonetta, who's written a really amazing book, I think, called The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here, um, which is a great title, by the way, um, and evokes all kinds of thoughts <laughs> about what it, you know you might be talking about here. How are you, Suzanne? Well, I'm very well, and thanks for having me. Well, this book was really interesting. You know, a lot of times when I get books, if it's fiction, I kind of have an idea what it's going to be about. But if it's not not fiction and memoir in particular, then it's sort of a mystery until I start reading. And I thought this book kind of captured me right away just because I think, I think first of all, your writing is really interesting and introspective, but also very clear and you kind of combine this idea of talking about physics with the idea of talking about spirituality and emotion and history and and family in a way that I thought was really powerful on the back of the book somebody called it a meditation and I did think of it as kind of meditative and you know thinking about how you write about your own experience your own family I think what you've done is this kind of direct indirection that allows you to explore uh, your family in a way that is it's really powerful. And I'm, I just want to ask, you know, kind of how you started on this. Yeah, thank you. Well, I love direct indirection. I think that's going to become my new sort of personal <laughs> mantra. My book's always kind of a crete. I think of them sometimes almost as a little bit like Frankenstein's monsters. They, you know, they, I, they just keep getting new nuts and bolts and things. And in the case of this book, um, the properties where it's set, we lot that were built by my grandfather who just kind of threw these shacks up on this land. He kind of squatted in New Jersey on Barnegat Bay. Um, we lost those properties to Sandy in 2012. So, and they were so super important to my whole family. I mean, we would spend some, you know, much of each summer there with my extended family. My grandmother, who's so important in the book, who, you know, we had seances there. There was a particular table she used, and it was interesting because it was very small. It wasn't a comfortable seancing table at all. It was square. But she felt that in it, she connected with the spirit named Simon, and he told her things. And, you know, so all of that was lost. And I thought when I started out the book, well, I'm just going to tell the story of my grandmother. She was fascinating. She was a Christian scientist, but she was also a spiritualist, which could get you excommunicated from Christian science. <laughs> so um, that was interesting. And she drank and she did all these other things that were not very Christian science uh, appropriate. And what her kind of common glue was that she was fascinated by what she called her metaphysics, what she felt like um, were the mysteries of the world and the mysteries of the mind and how there was always so much going on behind what we thought we could see. So I wanted to just tell her story. Like I said, she was very interesting. You know, she skinny dipped, she traveled, she was a real free spirit. I mean, she would hitchhike, she would, you know, she didn't have any, you know, any real money to send. So she would go to Amsterdam and she would stay in a brothel because it was cheap. 
that was the kind of person she was. But as I told her story, I realized, well, there's so much else connected to that because she did have these larger beliefs about the world that were not a little outside of the way most people see things. So I ended up, as I engaged with her, having to engage with those beliefs as well. So that brought me to a lot of science, a lot of consciousness studies, and also to that um, what I do in the book where I visit psychics, because I also wanted to look at that. You know, I, I'm skeptical, but I thought, well, I'm just going to go out there and see, you know, what really happens when you go to these people. And it was very interesting. Well, it was sort of, I was kind of thinking about it. Maybe it's, you know, maybe miss this might be me putting a little of myself or my my own thinking to, to it but it's sort of like as if you had gone to a a therapist and they and they want you to talk about your family and instead of talking about your parents you start with your grandparents and it's sort of <laughs> striking like okay um you know and here's this important you know she was really obviously important to your family um and to and then, but you had much more of a complicated relationship with your mother. So you get to your mother through your grandmother, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and um, you know <laughs> what I like is that you've kind of been well. You've been extraordinarily honest in how you talk about your own self. Um, you know your your struggles, let's say. And mm-hmm. how also that relates to other people in your family and their struggles, um, but it but and you kind of put it in the context of Sandy as this hurricane event, you know, that wipes mm-hmm. away everything. So it kind of uh, by wiping away the past, it brings the past back into the foreground um, in that you know kind of contradictory way. Um, but you relate it also to. Um, cosmology via quantum physics mm-hmm. you know that there's sort of the the theme there of place and its meaning but then when you kind of um talk about all these uh the physics and the physicists who you've read and and by the way i think your explanation of a lot of these um complex ideas is really well done because I think those are complicated ideas that really are challenging. I mean, you could recommend this book to people as a basic primer in quantum physics and oh. you know, in constructor theory too, which I thought, yeah, that's not easy. <laughs> no, no. And thank you. That is exactly what warms my heart to hear. I do want to, I do want to be somebody who gets out there and kind of connects this. Um, because I think science has been sort of afraid of making those connections to sort of how we live. But it's obviously, you know, if time isn't what we think it is and it's recurrent and things aren't really gone, then obviously that's got huge implications for life, for death, for grief. Well, well right, because well, quantum physics is, you know, forcing uh, kind of a a new view of consciousness, but also the idea of what is being and what is space and what is time. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Those are all the things that, of course, religions have and spiritual belief systems have been built on for the eons of time that humans have been around. Um, and and we've always thought of physics and science as being contrary to religion and spirituality and belief. 
Um, right. And now that's being disproven um, or rethought. Um, I, I read, I've been reading this book by Avi Loeb, who's a um, astrophysicist at Harvard, who has mm-hmm. proposed that you know the I, that this object that traveled through the solar system recently had to have been manufactured by somebody, not us. Umuamua. Yes, yeah. Umuamua. And you know, it puts him in this kind of awkward position. You can feel it in the way mm-hmm. he writes the book that he's a scientist who realizes yeah. that what he's saying is almost apostasy to people who are materialists. And what you've done by pointing out, I think pretty well, is that the materialism of physics, of physicists, of quantum physics, is actually, you know, a spiritual uh, construct. Right. Yeah. And it's so interesting that one man I interviewed, Donald Hoffman, who is just amazing. Um, he had, he, he studies consciousness. So one of the things I was talking to him about was um, the idea of consciousness is kind of this larger force in the universe, which is it's not unusual. That's, a, that's a, not probably the predominant belief, but it's quite a common one that consciousness is something that might have existence kind of outside of the brain and be something that exists in a larger way in the universe that various things can partake of. Um, but, you know, at the end of the interview, I said, well, anything interesting that you haven't told me, what you're working on now? And he said he was thinking about working on a mathematical formula for what, as he put it, other people would call God, mm-hmm. which he called, his term for it was the infinite conscious agent. Right. Um, but that was right. so fascinating to me that, and for a lot of these folks I talked to, I would end up by saying, well, um, tell me how this affects how you live your life. That's kind of my favorite question after you get through all these theories. Um, and the answers are really, really interesting because I think while science does tend to pull back from saying, well, this is a commentary on how we humans wake up in the morning and go about our day, um, it was for pretty much everybody I talked to something really important to them that maybe they believed in the multiverse and it affected the way they think about the life they're living in whatever you want to call it, this particular variation or, um, you know, the way, you know, thinking about time a certain way uh, made somebody like Julian Barber really, he believes strongly that time is always existent. It doesn't go away. He calls, time kind of this endless series of nows and they're just always present and it gave him this wonderful appreciation for you know each moment so to me that was always really interesting because i think that science has been really afraid of being co-opted by new age thinking and rightly so i mean there's a lot of sloppy thinking in the new age well, and there's also a lot of people who want to, they want a a kind of uh, affirmation of a purely um, uh, experiential belief based belief system. You know that we a lot of mm-hmm. people kind of self we create our own uh, cosmology based on the mm-hmm. what makes us feel good about it and helps explain it to ourselves. But it's mm-hmm. also what you pointed out, I think, in a couple of cases where you talk to physicists who 
really indicated that as they got older, their perception of the way physics worked changed and what it meant mm-hmm. changed. I thought that was actually fairly unintentionally illuminating because so much of what they say about uh, in terms of the explanations they give, the constructs they've fabricated are, they're basically, as you kind of indicated, thought experiments. And mm-hmm. then the thought experiments become kind of self-fulfilling, just the way a new age person creates a reality that becomes their world. And um, right. and from the, if you're inside it, I mean, this is sort of how cults work. If you're inside it, it all makes sense. There's a logic to everything. Um, but if you step outside and try to figure it out, it actually is really hard to understand. And, you know, on the, and then of course, it's sort of like an endless on the other hand. Then you have Fred Hoyle, who, as an atheist, um, concludes, and I think this, this was a part of the book that I thought was really powerful that this sort of the absolute necessity of certain physical attributes of the universe to exist in order for us to be here. Um, kind of implies something greater than just accident. Um, and that's what a lot of, you know, the quantum physics leads you to, you know, the idea that this is, you know, could be Fred Hoyle as there's a, a motivating uh, designer or is the, mm-hmm. um, you know, the idea that things are so complex it could only be a computer that makes this. Um, <laughs> those yeah, kind of... That's a good one, yeah. Yeah, they lead you to some pretty incredible sensibilities that can't be proven or disproven so that they become forms of belief systems not to i'm not trying to diminish their power i think they're intellectually Mm -hmm. incredibly astute and they kind of lend credence to a lot of physical phenomena that most people have observed you know this idea that all time is present at all times well that kind of explains a lot of psychic phenomena if that were true, right? you know, that, yeah, well, there's a reason why you have, uh, you know, you can see the future because the future has already happened. Um, and if the, and you could see the past because sometimes you get a glimpse of the past because it's always there. Um, or what if, you know, the multiverse, there are multiple realities existing in such a, a massive, um, quantity that it, once in a while they bump into each other. Um, who knows? <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. And I would say, um, sort of on the one hand that, of course, you know, one of the spiritualists in the book is the American, um, Andrew Jackson Davis, who was kind of the prophet of Poughkeepsie, one of the great American 19th century spiritualists. I mean, he said that there were people living on Saturn and that they had, you know, wonderful symmetrical faces. And of course that is, not supported by anything really, except what he called his astral travels. And, you know, if you go to things like time theory, it is supported by a lot of things that are pretty um, quantifiable. It's supported by equations. It's supported by the fact that we now know it's not a theory any longer that time is, is not, you know, that the universe space time is bendable and things like our GPS systems factor that in. So there's that. But at the same time, I think what you're getting to, and you're right, is that there's also philosophy behind which way you go. 
Um, the fine-tuning of the universe, which is where the title, The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here, comes from, is so remarkable. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Um, you, the great John Wheeler would just kind of go into these raptures about these numbers yep. that are um, the things that tune our ability to live, our ability to be, you know, these carbon-based life, life forms that we are. And, you know, to be here to think, to kind of have that, what he called this participatory or interactive relationship with the universe. Um, so that is so striking that it actually is what led to the belief that there's a multiverse, that it's so unlikely that we're here, that there must just be infinite universes and we just happen to be on this good one where everything worked out. Or, or the um, similar view being that this is a created reality um, by mm -hmm. inconceivably different or advanced, um, you know, beings that are able to build a universe of this complexity, and that's why all of those um, congruencies exist. You know, certain mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. the idea of pi or the golden mean, right. all these things that are constant mathematical truths that underlie the entire universe. Yeah, uh, Michio Kaku is really interesting on that. He's a physicist, um, and he's the one who said that the the probability of our universe being what it is is the same as the probability of a plane being blown apart <laughs> in the sky by high winds and having the same winds put it back together <laughs> before it crashes. Right. <laughs> so, so it is. I mean, so that is something that you know is based on fact. But then, what you do with it? I mean, you can go intelligent design. You know, there is a force here that wants us to be here, or um, just the idea that the universe itself, which I think is where Wheeler, John Wheeler, would go, is that kind of force that we are part of it. It's part of us, and we're interacting. But it isn't really theistic. It isn't really like a god. Or just that there's a multiverse, and so we just, you know, we're on the one universe where everything worked out, and, you know, but there are infinite other ones where it all didn't. So all that's kind of philosophical, I think. Like um, Lee Smolin, the time theorist I talked to, said his theory of time changed completely when he had a son, when he had a child late in life. And then he, time seemed to him something completely different kind of more real than it had seemed to him before. So it, to me, with those sort of human investments, that the human drive, I think you're kind of saying the same thing, the human drives behind the research. Um, to me, the heart is so fascinating. And I think it's kind of too bad that science keeps that a little bit bottled up some of the time um, because, you know, to all of us, this is just, such fascinating information. To me, science is almost kind of a meditative practice. And it's very, it's very connected to me with being bipolar. I just think that the world to me has always felt different than it seemed to me it, it felt to other people around me. And because my consciousness was different, I would sort of think about consciousness. I wanted to understand this this strange thing. And so, you know, going into consciousness studies and talking to people like Giulio Tononi, who really believes that the mind is really connected to the world around us and that the world around us 
contains consciousness. It's not just something that happens to us. And his, his reasons for that are so interesting. So for me, there is, there's an incredible connection to who I am as a person and why I want to think about these things and learn about these things. And I guess my hope would be that while other people don't share my story exactly, they have their stories and those stories are going to connect to these ideas about why are we here? What's real? Well, I think, no, I, it, right. I, I think it's exactly right. And what you've done with this book is made it possible for people who are not necessarily scientists or philosophers and who may not want to learn as much as you have done um, to enter that realm of thinking because you've uh, kind of empathetically opened that door. I think that's what's interesting about this book is that it's um, kind of, it, you go back and forth constantly between the personal, the present, the past, the family, uh, people who matter to you, people who um, are part of your story and who shaped who you are in your worldview, and then link them to the consciousness and physics uh, thinking that um, you've studied. And so, you know, that's why I said I thought as a kind of introduction to those thinkers, it's really good. I mean, not only do you write about them really clearly, but it's also by linking them to your personal experience, you show why that would be interesting. And it's not, you know, you don't have to be a uh, a scientific thinker in order to be able to find meaning in scientific thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, I keep joking with people that the terrible unlikelihood of our being here, this book came out during COVID in February. And it just felt like that title was almost written for this moment, but it wasn't. I mean, it pre-existed pandemic by quite a bit, but it does feel at this moment terribly unlikely <laughs> that we're here. And CNN approached me when the book came out to do an interview with them because um, their book reporter who did it was, you know, was reading the book and was saying, I'm like, you know, my Lord, like time has completely changed for all of us. We, it's just not even the same thing since the pandemic started. And she found the material in the book on time to be really relevant. And that's what I did. I did an interview with them called Blur's Day. Um, <laughs> but the idea of time as recurrent and sort of um, things never being really gone but at the same time, they seem to go so quickly that just, it just all speaks so much to, to COVID and to that weird way in which every day felt the same during COVID. But at the same time, we would say, oh, gosh, I can't believe it's been a year now. Um, so it's interesting because I do think that things like um, Einstein's vision of time say, you know, if it's, if it's, if it's narrated to you in a certain way, you'll think, well, that's got nothing to do with me. I mean, that's got nothing to do with the way I experience the world. I don't, I don't understand these equations. I don't, you know, I don't know what E equals MC squared means. And, and that's, you know, it, it, it just, it doesn't affect me. But then if you think about it another way, I mean, if you look at not the sort of all the minutiae maybe, but you look at the sort of broad claims, it affects us all tremendously. It makes it makes a lot of sense actually to start thinking of time as not just this forward arrow, but something more complex. Yeah, I although 
I, I think a lot of the problem for humans, and maybe one of the reasons why the pandemic did alter that a bit, is that we are constantly filtering out. You know, our entire ex- consciousness is about reducing the the amount of sensory input because there's so much, mm. and trying to simplify mm-hmm. and control our experience so that we can make sense out of it and live a daily life. Because if you're open to the level of sensory input that's out there, and I kind of think about this as, you know, in the way that psychedelics work, that they break down mm-hmm. the barrier between uh, control and and openness. And that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons. And, and I think that actually has to do with bipolar and other disturbances of the normal um, kind of uh, control systems that once you are open to the full a fuller range of experience, things can get really complicated, and it's hard yeah. to con- you know it's hard to function. Um, and I think that the pandemic slowed down a lot of the input and mm-hmm. um, created space for people to experience awareness in a different way. Not to say that we all like you know, suddenly became enlightened or anything, but just that, you know, it gives you a minute to stop doing what you were doing uh, because Mm -hmm. we are, you know, it's a materialist and kind of, you know, I mean, it's easy to criticize, but it is a kind of relentless uh, action activity. Like we are all ants and, you know, Mm -hmm. how can you be conscious when you're moving all the time? Um, You're not, you're not ever, uh, you know, you're not ever able to meditate, you know, ever able to think, experience yeah. and and feel and see behind the kind of day-to-day um, mm-hmm. um, input control systems that we build. So I think maybe that is part of the reason why a lot of people have, I mean, I've been reading this, that people are quitting their jobs, <laughs> like mm-hmm. in large numbers, because they've discovered yeah. through the pandemic that actually that job wasn't really fulfilling. And, <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. th- there is something else to life. Um, and right. you know, so maybe, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, the pandemic was good. It, I'm not putting a value on it, but just that it right. did kind of rend the fabric of existence in a in a similar way in a similar way to you know what your book is about sandy kind of having that effect you know this um uh suddenly a world that was is no longer and right i, th- I think that creates opportunities for recreation not necessarily returning to normal but reconstituting oneself Right. Yeah, no, I think those are really great points. I think I would say that, you know, the thrust of the book is more about family. And, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but I didn't intend my mother to be in there sort of to the way extent that she was. But my grandmother did usher her in. And my grandmother was a formidable person. And it's hard to be the child of a formidable person. And so that kind of gave me a little bit of, um, it humanized my mother a bit to think, well, how hard to have been this woman's daughter. I mean, aside from the fact that she was never there and, you know, her life was kind of a quest and her children were um, kind of swept under Mm. that quest. Right. And so the science comes in, I think, 
in so far as it as it reflects on our stories and on her questions. Her questions being because Christian Science has believed that mind is all that exists, and it fascinated me that there were people like Giulio Tononi who really do believe consciousness has this kind of power and this existence in its own right. I think the idea of the science and the psychedelics is an interesting one because it's true. Like people in the 60s and 70s didn't continue to take LSD constantly because you really can't live that way, um, or most people can't. But it's interesting to think that now psychedelics are used in in, uh, therapy. Um, They're used in kind of psychotherapy situations because in small doses, they can make you re-experience your life in a way that, oh, like in the case of trauma, can render it less traumatic or can allow you to explore the trauma and sit with it and get over it that way. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I think science is scary because there's so much out there. And, and it is impossible to try to take in all of it. And scientists feel the same way. I mean, you know, they'll tell you that they understand their area really well, but then if you bring up something else, they, they will often say they don't really know much about it. But I think it's a little bit of a sort of um, a corrective or a new lens. It it's really brings so much to thinking about um, just how we live and what it means to be family and what it means to, you know, I've had this sort of whole history that is suddenly gone. And at the end of the book, I imagine my grandmother is still there. She's been this kind of phosphorescence that we keep seeing. And hmm. that was for me kind of a pretty real feeling. Like, yeah, I, I think that she has in some way still been with us and not in a kind of woo-woo or being in our hearts sort of a way, but in a way that kind of um, just thinking about time and and existence in certain ways, things sort of shifted. And it changed the way I experienced grief because things just didn't feel so gone. And the universe, that kind of just hospitality, (laughs) you know, the lengths it had to go for us to be here to me, it's a really cool corrective to just that sense we've had lately of this slog through a lot of tragedy and a lot of sadness, which is very real. I'm not dismissing it. No, that's true. But I think I, I just was talking to somebody yesterday about this idea of the ancestors um, being present in a sort of, and it could be looked at as a psychic way, but it's sort of an energy form. And it, you know, it relates to you know, many cultures have mm-hmm. um, recognized the power of ancestors and their ability to be present and in some ways uh, influential on us um, when we mm-hmm. allow them to be. So I think the, you know, the idea that, you know, you, by, you also invoke them in a kind of ceremony and writing a book is a form of ceremony, mm-hmm. I think. So maybe this this is how you um, you know were able to integrate the uh, the uh, your the loss of your grandmother and your mother, um, you know, kind of and bring them psychically back into presence. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful. I think that's true. I like the idea of a book as a kind of an invocation to come back, and I mean, it does 
you know, by the end of the book, I had rethought those relationships because I think you do, as you write about relationships, you have to kind of come to a new place with them. So, yeah, and then thinking about just um, time differently and, you know, the ways in which my mother probably wished she had done things differently. Um, all of that was really, it was really fascinating. It was really interesting just to me to put those things in conversation. And, you know, the other sort of less, um, the equation-free side of things is that I did visit psychics. And one of them was just remarkably accurate. I still don't know what to think about it. And she wrote everything down. So um, while she was talking, she just jotted things down. And so I still have the paper she gave me. So whenever I think, well, I must have just imagined that she was that accurate, I go look at it. And it's kind of like, no, she said things that were remarkable. She said to me that my husband and I had once been to a haunted house called the Hay House, which isn't a super important part of my history, but we were. It's in Macon, Georgia. And it was just so remarkable to me that she could see these things. And I don't know, I still don't know what I think about that. Because I think, I kind of want to see myself as a skeptic, but I, but there are things that I don't, I, I don't understand. And in her case, she's not a scientist. She doesn't have chalkboards full of equations, but it happened. And it was really bizarre. So. You know, maybe once you start this business of pulling at the threads a little bit and saying, I don't really know as much as I thought I knew, then you you get some really interesting threads yeah. no, in your hand. And, right. You're open to, you open a door and you don't know what's going to be there. Exactly. And yeah, and that was fascinating. And you know, I think something I've been writing about a little more since then is just the fact that, you know, if you if you look at somebody's medical records and they're bipolar, you have this whole sort of, this is when it emerged and this is when it was diagnosed and blah, blah, blah. But I was never not bipolar. I mean, I have diaries I wrote when I was a kid and I was saying, I have two different selves. I am A me and B me. So it was always part of my world. And when you're when you see things differently, you're just not somebody for whom, you know, you say like, why is the sky blue? And somebody says it just is, and that you kind of stop there. When your consciousness is different, there isn't any. It just is. <laughs> you're always kind of pursuing it. Why am I seeing things differently than people around me? Why does it feel different? Why does, you know, what? Why does my um, way of approaching the world feels so different than it seems like everybody else's does. So I think that too, for me, has always been such a huge part of my curiosity about the world and about consciousness and about um, the possibility that what many people see maybe isn't all that there is. Maybe to me, that's kind of a comforting thought that the norm isn't necessarily the accurate. Mm. I think that's that a good sense. yeah, I think that's a good perception. Well, I really want to thank you for spending some time talking to me. I really it was really fun and um uh, I really enjoyed this book, The Terrible Unlikelihood of Our Being Here. 
So I want to thank you, Suzanne, Paola, Antonetta, for being here on Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. Thank you.